Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. Matthew Kidman is a well-known entity to readers of Livewire. As host of Success and More Interesting Stuff, I Hold Sell, and more recently, Livewire Live. Finally, we got him in the hot seat to run us through his own journey into funds management, his approach to investing, and the way he's thinking about markets today. From hard truths on a squash court to running his own fund, Matt's story is one of happenstance. It's also a story about the importance of mentors and networks. To steal a line from Top Gun, the list is long but distinguished. Jeff Wilson, John Sevior, Anton Tagliaferro, and Peter Morgan, to list just a few of the household names that have shaped Matt's career. Their influence can be seen in the way Matt runs Centennial Asset Management and its Level 18 fund. While it focuses on value and small caps, it's got a highly flexible mandate that lets it ride momentum when the market is on, go short when it's not, and preserve capital when crisis hits. So buckle up, we cover all these topics and more in today's bumper episode. And now a word from our sponsor. Research shows that experienced investors are looking for an edge. As the first ever sponsor of Livewire's Rules of Investing podcast, Bell Direct is offering exclusive access to three current Bell Potter stock reports every week for a limited time and the chance to win a share of 3 million velocity frequent fly points, which we will explain at the end of this podcast. All right, Matt Kidman, welcome on the Rules of Investing. Hi, David. How are you? Normally, it's you doing the hosting, but uh, the tables have turned. Yeah, it's interesting being on this side of the table. Um, hopefully, as, a, as I said, I hope I don't talk too much. On, on, when I'm hosting, I'm looking at the clock the whole time. Now, <laughs> now that's your stress point. No, that's fine. Lean into it. Matt, take us back a bit so we can understand how you landed in investment finance. I believe it all started with a law clerkship and some hard truths. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't have your typical or or textbook entry into financial markets. I studied economics law. Well, I grew up on a farm, and, and which is a small business in itself. So small businesses always, or businesses have been part of my life. Farming's probably one of the hardest and, and um, most difficult to manage, but that's where I grew up. And then I, I went and did economics law after my father told me, don't work with your hands, you'll go broke. And so I was lucky <laughs> enough to get into a law course. I, I like the economics. I like the law as well. But when I got... When I got out of there, well, the back end of it, there was a few seminal moments about career changes and you talk about sliding doors. I, I was lucky enough it was the early 90s recession. There weren't many jobs going. And in law courses in New South Wales, you get the opportunity at the end of fourth year to go into a clerkship. And they're quite well sought after. And then there was virtually none being offered. But I turned up in an interview at... at um, a, a mid-sized firm, I got a couple of interviews, but a mid-sized firm, my grades were middle of the road, so I'm not going to get this job. And the guy who interviewed me grew up just near where I did and did the same course at Macquarie University. And we got on like a house and fire. Next thing you know, I had a clerkship. So I, I winged that a bit. And then when I got in there, uh, and I, I don't think it'll be a problem mentioning his name, the, the managing partner was a gentleman called David Rose. And David was an old Scotsman and pretty straight to the point. Not many words, but straight to the point. And when I started the eight weeks there, we were on rotation. The first two weeks I was under David. And he said to me, first meeting, he said, Matthew, do you play squash? And I went, <laughs> yeah, I played a bit of squash. He goes, good, we're playing Tuesdays and Thursdays for the next eight <laughs> weeks. And so I got on really well with David. 
And when, when it came to the end of the clerkship, he calls me into the office separate from the other clerks. It was four of us. And he said, sit down, Matthew. He goes, I've really enjoyed having you here. It's been good. And I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, you're not going to make a lawyer. It's not you. We're not going to hire you. Go and find something else to do. There's something better out there for you. Dream crushed. Dream crushed. Or four, four and a half years of study and a long journey. So I walked out that night. Well, I felt a bit, I felt a bit crushed for a couple of hours, but I walked out and I, when I walked out that night um, to go home, I felt pretty good. So I think the advice was good. But what was interesting to finish off that story was some years later when I was working at Wilson Asset Management, we used to do investor roadshows and our investors being listed investment companies were all retail investors and people would come along. And we were doing one in Sydney one day. I reckon it was maybe even up to 15 years after that end of that clerkship and that conversation. I noticed David was in the audience. And we used to, when the formal presentation was over, people queue up and ask you questions about stocks and I could see this David Rose three or four back and he would have been retired by this stage and he got to the front and I said, oh, and he goes, do you remember who I am? I said, yeah, David, good to see you. And he didn't say anything else. He said, just remember that conversation we had um, all those years ago? And I said, about not being a lawyer? He goes, yeah. So I told you to work out for you. And then he shook my hand and walked away. That was it. <laughs> it's funny how life gives you those moments. Yeah. So in that, in that bit, I, I've got good advice from my own father. Don't do this. And what not to do eventually got me to something that was a lot more interesting. So it's, it's a bit unorthodox. And I went on from there to work at, um, as a journalist for five years before I actually started as a fund manager, which most people say, how do you make that leap as well? So that was a bit of luck as well. But, um, and that's anyway. where you met Jeff Wilson. That's right. I, I, I spent my first year, when I, when I realised I wasn't going to be a lawyer, I thought, well, what else can I do? And I was on a bus. I was backpacking around Europe. It was the early 90s. There were no jobs. I had no prospects whatsoever. And I was backpacking around Europe and I was standing on a bus in Italy it was before you had mobile phones, smartphones, and I couldn't afford to buy a newspaper because the foreign newspapers that were in English were well beyond my daily budget when I was backpacking. And I was standing on this bus and I could see people in front of me reading the newspaper and it was in Italian and I couldn't read it and I thought, I really miss that. Maybe that's what I can do. I can be a journalist. And so from that point, I was working at a cinema. That, that was the job after doing a law degree. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to become a journalist. So I worked at that and got a job at Campbelltown, which is on the outer, outer suburb of um, Sydney, for those who don't live in Sydney. And I travelled out there every day for a year and did a cadetship and then eventually landed a job at the Sydney Morning Herald in the business section. And, and I, I was always quite... I was more probably more interested in sport and politics, but business always intrigued me. And I got in there and that was the start of following the share market and, and got to do things I, I shouldn't have done as a mid-20s person. I got to interview people like Kerry Stokes and Izzy Asper, who was running Channel 10 at the time, and I did the Telstra float. And at the time, I also met Jeff Wilson. And Jeff was a broker at Prudential Base um, Securities. And at first, we didn't get on. Someone introduced us, and it was a bit of a cold reception, <laughs> and we didn't quite get on. But I, I reckon about third year I was at the Herald, um, Jeff rang me one day and said, I, I know you cover this round. You might find this bit of information interesting. You've been following this story. And I said, oh, I could. And so we, we struck up a, a friendship. And about a year or so later, we, we talked quite regularly after that and got on quite well. A year or so later, he invited me to lunch and we went to Machiavelli's and he ordered a bottle of champagne. I thought, this is interesting. And it was the day... 
that the Asian crisis was happening and, and the Australian market opened 7% down that day. You know, that, not, not exactly cause for celebration. No, that's right. And um, I said, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, I'm going to leave Prebation. I'm going to set up, I'm going to do a couple of things, but I'm going to set up a funds management business. But I, he said, I also wouldn't mind um, doing a few other things. So we left it there, had lunch, and I thought that was an interesting interesting episode. And then he rang me not long afterwards and said, look, one of the other things I was thinking about doing was writing an investment book. And he goes, I've got no idea about him writing, but I've got the idea for the book and I know the people I want to put in it. And would you be interested in writing it with me? You're a journalist. And I said, oh, yeah, all journalists want to write books. You know, that's, that's part of it. And I, I wasn't any different there. And he goes, well, just hold on there one second. I said, where are you? And he goes, I'm standing in a Dimmick's bookstore. And he said, um, I've looked up who the main publisher of Australian business books are and I'm going to ring them. Okay. So he, he, while I'm on the phone, he had two phones going and, and um, he, he rang, got through, and he said, oh, hi, I'm Jeff Wilson. I've got an idea for an investment book. Um, I, you know, I worked at Probation. I've got recruited Matthew Kidman, the journalist, to write it with me. We're going to interview the best investors in Australia. It's going to be called Masters of the Market, based loosely on Market Wizards from the US, which is a famous book. And the person's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, yeah, well, I think we can do that. And he goes, okay, good, we've got a deal. We'll do the book and you can publish it. And then Jeff goes, right, we've got someone. When are we going to start? And so that we were writing a book all of a sudden. All of a sudden? Yeah. A five-minute book deal. Yeah, that's right, five-minute book deal. And, and that's typical of Jeff. What you don't think is possible happens very quickly when he puts his mind to it. And a few weeks, or maybe a couple of months later, we'd done a couple, a couple of interviews, started getting going on it, on the book, and... I said to him, I've been thinking about moving out of journalism for a while. I was interested in business. I got to know a lot of fund managers. I was lucky in that period. I got to talk to people like Greg Perry, like Anton Taliaferro, like Peter Morgan. And they were the most interesting people, how they thought about things, how you look at companies. And over the couple of years, I found that interesting. So I kind of made up my my own mind that I wouldn't mind trying to get into funds management. I didn't realise I didn't really have the pedigree to do it. You know, I was a journalist. But... Um, John Sevior, who I worked with briefly, had done it. He'd gone to Perpetual. And then I, I got a job offer from someone who I, I didn't really want to work for, but I just thought I needed the chance. They weren't doing exactly what I wanted to do, but I needed the chance to get started. You, had to, you, know, you have to take jobs sometimes to build your resume to get to the end point. And... I said this to Jeff, I said, look, I think I'll take this job. What do you think? I was looking for some advice. And he'd started Wilson Asset Management then. This was probably February or March 1998. And he'd started in the January, left probation by this stage, and it started like, he, like he'd threatened to do. And he didn't have much money. In fact, uh, we can come back to that in a second. But I, I said, I wouldn't mind taking this job to get started. Do you have any views? And he said, oh, that's interesting. And then... <laughs> No, he didn't give me anything much. And then the next day he rang me. He said, look, I've been thinking about it. He said, the business can't afford you, but you can't write a book with me and work for someone else. You've got to come work with me. And he, and he said, um, but I really haven't got any money. Let me think about that. <laughs> and so he came back a couple of days later. He said, oh, don't worry. We'll pay you. And, you know, it's an investment in the business, a bit of working capital. And he said, I just want you to come in. He goes, I'm stuck at the desk every day. Can, can you just organise for me to see companies? I've got to get out of the office. That can be your first job. And so that's where it started. I left the Herald, took a pay cut and went there and, you know, that was the start of 13 years. And Jeff knew what he was doing, but he, he hadn't been a fund manager for a while. So there was a lot of learning on the job. And he was terrific. He, he taught me how to look at stocks. How, how to build portfolios was a little bit different because 
there were, we set up at RG Capital's offices on Macquarie Street and we shared offices and I was landlocked. I didn't even have a window. I used to go in and, and Jeff, Jeff was always on the move and I'd organise companies for him and occasionally more and more I started to go with him and, you know, learnt the business. But about a year after we started and we'd had a good first year, it was the tech boom of the late 90s and um, Jeff used to say, look, I don't believe in a lot of these companies but while it's going, we've got to play it. You know, we're just starting. Yeah. So we, we've got to have a strategy around that. But then David Paradise started his business and he came and sat on the same floor and he hired a couple of young guys, um, David Smith and Alan Crozier. And so I, I was more their age. And we used to do a lot of company visits and we used to chat a lot between us. And so I learned from them as well. So not only Jeff, but David Paradise and these other guys, they, they were managing wholesale money. We were doing kind of high net worth retail. So we weren't really competing, but we're looking at the same space. And so in those next couple of years, I, you know, my learning and, and you know, went up at a steep angle. What would you say the key tenets were uh, that you took from those guys and implemented in your own investing? Yeah, so Jeff had a couple of really strong attributes. He, he act, For someone who had been in stockbroking the bulk of his life, he did start as a fund manager, but as a stockbroker, he, he understood how important cash flow was to businesses. So today people concentrate on, and it's one of the great mysteries to me how the market's been able to move away from cash flow, even though in the last six months probably come back a bit. You know, today we look at what EBITDA growth is, what revenue growth is. Jeff would concentrate heavily on cash flow and he taught me how he looked at cash flow and what was the key things. Everyone's got their own version of that, which is, which is uh, interesting in itself. That was really good. And Jeff was also had a great... Sorry, what's, what's Jeff's version of cash flow? Oh, well, what does he, he look at? Yeah, well, he, he's looking at absolute free cash flow. Okay. Like, what does the business produce? Taking into account working capital, capex, um, you know, uh, any other one-off expenses, pre-dividends, after tax, all these different things. You know, he, if I had 45 minutes, we could do an example. But it proved to be a really insightful way of looking at things. And, and I, as I, years later, I wrote a book um, called Bulls, Bears and a Croupier, and this isn't a plug for it because there's no copies left, so you can't, you can't get hold of it. But I, I tagged that bit as um, the cash flow um, statement is the P&L on a truth serum. And so that, that's what it kind of taught me. And years later, companies like Ion, it was called Ion Carbide, but by the time it went bust, it was Ion. And it was obvious it was going to go bust if you looked at the cash flow and they didn't do something. But it was a boom stock for a while. Jeff was also a great market operator. He taught me about flows in the market because he'd been a broker and he'd never lost that. And he, he knew where all stocks were and what and, and what catalysts were. At the same time, lucky enough, a year later, David Paradise. And I'd go to a lot of meetings with David and that, that was fun because David would see companies ad nauseum. He'd see, once he had an investment, he might see a company five times in three weeks and say, come on, we'll go and see him again. Oh, I saw that guy on the street. And he'd always ask them the same questions. And the companies, most companies go, what? You've asked me that. <laughs> but he loved this, this theory about if you keep asking them the same questions, you want a consistency of answers. Mm. Otherwise, you know that maybe they don't know or maybe they're not telling you the complete truth. And David always said, there's only two or three things that are going to move a stock price. We can analyse the business. Anyone can analyse it. Anyone can analyse the balance sheet. And you've got a lot of people, brokers and your own employees looking at all these things from the financials but as the portfolio manager you've got to work out the one two or three things that are going to move that stock price either up or down and that was just another layer 
of how to look at things. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That he, he, He's happy to pay other people to deliver a lot of the information. And, and then Alan Crozier and David Smith were just young guns who were very good, good upbringings in terms of good groundwork and how they analyse stuff. And, you know, we used to see companies all the time, but they were more my age, so you, you had different conversations with them, but that was fun. So they were the main learning. So it was just a good environment. It's been a career of happenstance up until this point, but then you go away and you start managing your own personal money. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I spent... A bit over 13 years with Jeff, and for a long time it was just the two of us. And then we started to expand, and that, that was that was a lot of fun. We, we brought in various people. We didn't always get it right on the people side, but in the end we got it very right. We hired people like Chris Stott, and Chris now runs 1851, and I think you would know him. Very good investor. Brought his own skills to what we had. You, know, you want a layer, you want a foundation, you want a layer as an investor. Um, he hired Matt Halp. Who now runs the the and, mm. and Oscar Oberg, yeah. So you, you you get and Martin Hickson's another one who's with Chris. So it expanded quite a bit, and Jeff Jeff um, was a terrific leader, um, but he wasn't always that easy to manage. So it, at times it was quite you know stress not stressful but a, a fair workload, but always fun. But I found when I got into my early 40s, I had three kids. We kind of built what we talked about. It was interesting. And, and I was a little bit exhausted and I needed a break. But I thought, you can't be in funds management managing other people's money and just have a break. Mm. You know, it's Jeff's business um, and it's always day to day. You've got to be making sure you're putting in an effort every day for someone else's money. Otherwise, you, you, you're not living up to what you promise. And, and not. you can make mistakes, but you've got to make the effort. That's the key thing. So I just thought, had a long think about it, and we planned an exit over a long period. It was 18 months, and we you know, brought Chris in and said, look, we, we think you're ready in the next 12 or so months. And I stayed on three of his LIC boards while I was doing other things. But you're right, then I took a break. Um, I had three or four months off, wrote a book, um, which was at Bosbears and a Croupier. Um, what, what happened to the first book, by the way? Oh, yeah, that went really well. Yeah, yeah Masters <laughs> of the Market. Jeff was at his entrepreneurial best and he had like 3,500 books sold before we even had it done. He'd, he'd gone out to the broker network that we did and sold it as a Christmas present. But I think it <laughs> sold at the time somewhere like sixteen or 17,000, which for an Australian business book was, was excellent. And we did it, it did well enough for a sequel, but the sequel was just adding three new people, which they were terrific as well, and, and it didn't sell quite as well. And then I did Bulls, Bears and a Croupier, which was more about my experiences and all the questions we'd been asked by our retail network over the 13 years I was there, trying to answer them, but not question and answer, but by doing it through stories and chapters and so on. And that was fun. It was hard work. And then I'd had six months where I'd had that rest and recuperated and, and felt good again. And I thought, well, I want to do multiple things. A bit like when Jeff started Prubache. I left Prubache and started. I was kind of at that stage in my life. And I... I Decided I would go on a few boards, I would um, try and do a PhD and that I would manage my own money. I thought that's a much more pure way of investing. Can I, can I make a living out of my own capital? And I had enough capital to get by. If I was good enough, I could do it. If I, if I failed, I needed to go and find another job. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the luxurious position of saying, well, if I fail, I'll just give it away. But I did have enough capital to get out of the ground and going. So that, that happened for about four years. And, th and that was an intense period. I sat on a, a company board called Centrepoint Alliance, which 
post the GFC was one of those companies that had ASIC all over them. It was financial planning network. And they were heady times, dealing with class actions and so on, um, uh, a, lo- a lot of um, redemptions and, and payouts from bad advice, not through me, through previous management, obviously. And it was a real, if you want to know how to learn about cash flow and businesses and how to survive, that was one of them. And that, that was interesting. I stayed there for three or four years. Eventually did the PhD, uh, did it through ANU, and, and that, that was a lot of work. And what was it in? The question, with a PhD, you answer a question on a thesis effectively, and my question was, is the Australian ageing population, well, does the ageing population in Australia impact house and equity prices? And so that's... And in a word? It definitely affects home prices. The older the population gets by natural ageing, it has a positive correlation to prices. Older the age, higher the prices. It's, it, I could not find a connection with equity prices um, in any meaningful way. And that, that took three years and did that. And then at the end of the about four years of managing money, and, and it had worked quite well, I sat with another gentleman called Gary Joffe who had left Elliston, and we sat down and decided that we were drifting. We, we could manage our own money, but our model, which was no different to the WAM model in the sense of how you go about investing, mainly small caps, visiting a lot of companies, um, collecting a lot of information from various networks, including the broking network, we just didn't have enough financial capital to keep everyone interested. The network from being at WAM for 13 years and ringing up an MD and saying, can I come and visit you just to discuss, you know, your latest acquisition or, and run me through it. CEOs change, brokers change, and you ring them up and they say, well, who are you? Mm. So we thought we needed to be an institution but still manage it as if it was our own money. And so we started Centennial in 2015, which was about almost four years after, three and a half years after I'd left WAM. We'll get to the fund, the Level 18 fund, um, and markets more broadly. Uh, But I I really want to ask you, maybe with the exception of the names you've discussed already, um, you speak to a lot of business leaders and fund managers. Who has impressed you the most? What? From a, a management point of view or, or a fund manager? Uh, well, let's take each in turn. Okay, let's go with the fund managers. Uh, there's a lot of names and I, and I don't want to upset anyone, but if you, if you asked me in my early years when I was at the paper, you know, th- those guys like Anton and Peter um, Morgan who were at Perpetual and originally were terrific, but they, they were very much value-based investors. The guy who stood out was Greg Perry. And it was a moment for Greg. He, he was the right place at the right time, but it, 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 he nailed it. He was at Colonial, um, Colonial First State. He was a growth manager, which in Australia, there weren't too many growth managers. You know, the, the Robert Maple Browns of the world who pioneered funds management um, were, were basically value investors. And that's what had dominated the Australian landscape, that and mining. Greg was this new character who concentrated on companies that could grow quicker than GDP. And he went around and, it, and, and there was a, it was a growth period because we come out of the early 90s with the shocking recession and interest rates peaked and started to come down and growth became something, you know, growth companies were real all of a sudden in Australia. They weren't these cyclical building materials or mining companies that had a good year, a bad year, a good year, a bad year. There was companies that had genuine growth. So in the early days, um, Greg um, taught me a lot. I used to talk to him because I covered the media around here. He was obsessed mm-hmm. by media. 
And so he, he was interesting. Now, obviously, Jeff, David Paradise, they all have various things. Um, different times, there's value investors that, that do really well. Um, you know, there's a lot today. I've done an interview with Paul Zaratis. Paul is mm-hmm. about earnings. So every one thing I learned was that everyone comes to the market with a different personality. And you've taken a bit from everyone. You know, you, as we'll discuss later, you're not scared to ride a bit of momentum. Yeah, that's if right. If the market's going that way, you don't want to be too pigeonholed. If you want to try and perform year in year out, is markets all over? And um, and on the C-suite side, um, Anthony Scarley, who we're going to do a podcast with on, mm-hmm. on my podcast mm-hmm. soon, he, he's done an amazing job. Um, you know, he, he's very good there. Um, yeah, all, all the um, the tech companies, you look at Technology One, how they've transformed that business. It's gone from a small business to a big business, and Adrian DeMarco started that. And he's been able to hand over. The founder's been able to hand over and change that business. It's been incredible over the years. So, so there's a sprinkling of them, but there's been managers who have been terrific in short periods, and that, that reflects a bit more of the cyclical nature of the Australian businesses as well. Let's talk markets. You've made a big call in saying that the next bull market is underway. So your view isn't just about soft landing, it's about takeoff. Do you still hold that view and what forms that view? Yeah, I think what we've said is that uh, that we think the worst is behind us. And so I, I don't think we've ever really been in a bear market if you take the Australian market in total. Now, small caps have struggled badly and I would say over the last 18 months, small caps with their lack of liquidity and, and expo- you know, more fragile um, franchises compared to the big companies. But I do think the worst of this, of this um, period is over and bottoms were put in around October last year, September, October, maybe through the end of the year, depending which sector you're in. But people, when you say a new bull market has started, I think it's a continuation mm. of a bull market that started quite a few years ago. And, and I think we've got some good times ahead of us. The, the, the other bit of it is that bottoms don't have to be V-shaped. I think the current crop of people managing money, and they're very smart, but if you look at enough uh, bottoms in markets, the, the global financial crisis was 16 months and brutal. And that we thought there was a number of bottoms, and I was at Wham at the time. But eventually the bottom was V-shaped. Mm. You know, it had had a V, which the next six months, if you missed that first six months, it was a disaster. We know the COVID crisis only lasted five weeks. It was, a, it was the worst sell-off I've ever seen, but it was V-shaped. If then you go back to the previous bear market, which was the end of the tech boom, and as it was tagged the tech wreck, and Australia didn't actually join it too late, but the Americans had massive overvaluations and all the money came out, and it was a period where rates actually went up a bit. It was a rate cycle. And the bottom was formed over about eight or nine months. It wasn't a V-shape. It had a bottom in October, a bottom again in March, and it wasn't until you know that period was over that the markets got going. To me, it feels a bit like that. And, and people who think that it's a V-shape and it's just going to be a raging bull market straight away, Bull markets can take a while to build up a head of steam or, or a leg of a bull market, and that's how it feels at the moment. And the reason being, and we can talk about it a bit later, is that follow the interest rate cycle, don't follow the earnings cycle, because one of the big handbrakes, everyone mm. says, well, companies are expensive, that's not where a bull market starts. 
heard Jeremy Grantham say, and I 100% agree with him. But, I don't but, you, but if you strip out mega cap tech, it's not that high a base. No, no, but it's about mid-range. And, and that tells me it was never a bear market. It, it was a correction in a longer bull market that has another leg to go. And there will be a period where valuations get extreme. It always happens. The one thing we can be certain, prediction forecasts go wrong all the time. So don't forecast too much. But you know at the top of multi-year bull markets, valuations are extreme. And you know at the bottom of brutal bear markets, valuations are extreme the other way. We're kind of in the middle ground here. And so that suggests to me that what you follow the interest rate cycle. So rates after all that period of being low and then got super low during the GFC turned around and... We know why inflation with supply interruptions and the Americans took a while to start because of um, various political reasons why they didn't get on top of it too early. But they seem to have got on top of enough now. They've still got a ways to go. I still think we'll get more interest rate rises in the US. So it doesn't become permanent and, and you get this wage spiral where, you know, prices up, wages up, prices up and so on. They've kind of broken that nexus to a degree. They've got to keep at it, but to a degree... And people, I think, um, make the mistake that because rates are a bit high that markets can't perform. I think it's more the trajectory of rates. So right, if we can okay. flatten out, I think that's not a bad thing and we can get on with it and businesses can adjust. And we can talk about it out a bit later with some of the questions that you ask everyone. There's a few answers there. But one thing that's reassuring is that I think balance sheets in general in Australia are, are pretty good. Um, some of the ones that aren't have already been exposed to a large degree, capital raisings and whatnot. Um, interest bills have gone up. But generally, overall, I think they're okay. So what lead indicators are you looking at? Are you looking at the long bond? Oh, definitely, yeah. So we, we've had, I know we had Live Wire Live last week and I was on a panel where Phil King was talking about the US 10-year bond. Going all the way back to my initial conversations with the likes of Anton and Greg Perry, this is where I was the lucky one, where I was a journalist talking to these people. No one else got that opportunity. Was they? You'd ask them about markets and they'd say, I oh, just kept an eye on US interest rates. That's that's the key. What's that 10-year bond yield doing? That's where how we value everything. And I used to go, well, what are they talking about? I've got no idea. Now, it's obvious to everyone that that's our discount rate around the world for capital and so on and valuations. So... As Phil pointed out in that in that um, conversation last week, he pointed out that bond yields kind of peaked in October last year and then came off a bit, and it, the market rallied quite nicely in the back end of last year when no one thought it could. Everyone was pessimistic. Mm. Rates were going, the short end were going up, but the ten-year bond yield was coming off, which meant that the the bond investors, which is a big market, were saying we think the inflation issues coming under control, even though the short end's still going up, we're prepared you know, to bring the long end down. Market rally. Something that no one picked was the US economy re-accelerated and bond yields have had to tick up again. So it's not so much of it because the inflation rate's well below the short bond yield now. It's not, it's not about inflation as much, even though the Fed is still looking at it closely. It's about the fact that growth's higher and they're worried that that will tighten labour markets again and we need to bring it down. No one saw that coming. Everyone said, well, this, this year is the r- slowdown, best case scenario, you, you know, flat growth, but probably a recession. Here we are, and the US is going to punch out 4 or 5% growth in this quarter. But to play devil's advocate, um, I mean, just looking at what's happened the past year, are risk assets, especially equities, priced off uh, bonds and rates like they have been in the past? 
Well, yes, they have. And we saw that during 2022 where we saw that the, the most expensive equity assets, mainly in the US tech sector, but we saw it here as well in, in a less extreme way, got clobbered, absolutely clobbered. But the equity market has been better than the bond market, I think, in working out that growth wasn't going away. Mm. Inflation needed to come under control, but growth wasn't necessarily going away as, as easily as what analysts and commentators and um, all the bearish people in the world who've been waiting for this cycle to come along for decades. Now, I can't... I, I, ironically, the less money there is in the real economy, that sort of moves into um, into markets. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, I could also argue that maybe when interest rates were zero, that markets were cheap. Mm. You know, because people knew at some stage they would go up. So the market's always forward-looking. So the combination of where interest rates are now and what the growth is will deliver a certain outcome in the next couple of years. And that's what the market's looking at. Now, they could get that wrong. As I said, that um, growth is stronger. It wouldn't surprise me that there's, there's at least one, if not two more, US interest rate rises and maybe two or three here because we haven't got to the same boat. Inflation's still a bit high and our rates aren't as high. Maybe the cycle's not over and that's what the market's grappling with now. Because they had that rally in the first half and now we've kind of hit a bit of a wall and it's all more difficult. Mm. So, But the one thing that I think has come to fruition is that, that we could get a soft landing or not even a landing, which wasn't even entertained. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's locked in. I'm just saying that's where the market's at. Now that we're it's, it's amazing how consens- consensus was hard landing and then soft landing. Then, as you say, maybe no landing at all. Yeah, so the one thing, correct, and the one thing you want, we go back to that October point where those bond yields got to the 4.2, 4.25, and then they started to come off. Uh, oil played a role in that as well. That's the other thing we haven't discussed, um, which has gone back up now. Markets started to rally, but consensus was then a recession was looming because rates were going up, but the price action was telling you something different. And people think that black magic kind of, you know, is, is charting, but never, ever underestimate big liquid markets price action. Mm. It's telling you something, and you've got to be aware of what the market's telling you. And I think that was a classic example of it. And now the market's telling you, we've had this rally because we don't think we've got a nasty recession coming, but we're not sure how much more the Fed's got to go because growth is stronger. Um, Can the inflation genie be put back in the bottle with oil prices at these levels? No, I think, I think that's going to hold things up a bit. So we've gone from 8-odd percent down to, I'm talking US inflation here because Australia's lagging, but the direction's similar. 8-odd mm-hmm. percent, 8.8 or 8.9 at the peak, June, July 2022. Today it's, it's fallen back into the threes, but um, with core inflation somewhere around four, not low enough yet, oil going the wrong way and will feed into prices. The Fed's told you two is the target. I would think that two and a half's close enough. Um, 2.9's not, but if you can get to two and a half, 2.4, then they are probably saying, well, you know, we're, we're close enough. And if things do go a bit um, pear-shaped in the economy, then we've, we're happy to cut rates at that stage. Uh, above that, I don't think they would cut rates. So I think that last leg might take a lot longer than the first leg. And so it could be 18 months, depending on what oil does, that we get down to those levels. And this is the conversation 
about rates higher for longer. But that doesn't mean equity markets can't perform. And with a bit of inflation, earnings grow quicker as well, generally. And I think people have not not put that into their equation. Rates um, go up because inflation's up. Companies put prices up. They generally grow top line quicker. And so some don't have that advantage because they haven't got pricing power, but a lot have. It's, it's been one of the things that people have missed. That, and so earnings and revenue grow quicker than what people think, which offsets to a degree a bit, bit of the, the downside. Before we leave global markets, I've got to ask you about China. What's your outlook there, especially given how export dependent we are on it? Yeah, I think China's a world of pain. It's been that way, and I think markets were slow to pick up on that. So China was slow out of COVID, we know, and then... Once Xi got re-elected at the plenary back in October last year, his attitude towards everything changed. He went to the G20, um, re-engaged with a whole bunch of Western leaders that he'd been fighting with because he knew he had to do business with them. He then turned around and opened up China fairly quickly over a couple of months when, when there was no evidence of that prior. And COVID went through that population at a rapid clip. We're not sure how many people died, but... By that stage, COVID had evolved into something less nasty, I would imagine, and they got through it. So it was that point where when they first opened, there was a spark in the economy. Everyone, after being locked down for so long, went out, went to restaurants and went and visited friends. And yeah, but then the, this reopening trade was a dud. And then it just fell in a hole. Yeah. And, and you're right. By about March, everyone was going, well, here we go. And it just didn't eventuate. There was no traction whatsoever. And, and everyone's got a view on China, and I'm just one of them. But what the numbers are telling you is that there is no quick fix to China this time. There's not a quick stimulus reboot that everyone's talking about. Can't build their way out of it. And I don't think they've got the desire to. I think they've got other issues. They know that there's a lot of zombie um, property companies that are attached to um, you know, lending institutions, and they know that the plumbing, uh, the network and the plumbing is not working. And I suspect they think internally that there's a couple of years of work to do. And the other issue they've got is youth unemployment. So it, social cohesion in China is paramount because the number one, whatever you think, whatever you think is the case, uh, are the main objectives of a government, there's only one objective in the Chinese political system, and that's for the Communist Party to stay a one-state mm. system. So they will do whatever it takes. Sometimes that is induced by a carrot, which we've seen since 1979 and the opening up of the economies and a taste of, of what it's like to own things and capitalism. The other thing is a stick. And so they're at a real nice edge at the moment because youth unemployment's high. Social disruption only ever comes from young people. It doesn't come from people my age. And if youth unemployment's high, that, that can cause problems. So... I think China will become incredibly inward-looking and have started that process in terms of trying to fix their financial system on the back of the property issues and the idea that China comes out really quickly and grows is dead. It's going to be a slow burn and so don't count on China the next few years. Let's bring it home. How does the Aussie market specifically look to you right now across the sectors? Yeah, I, I think... Just linking it briefly to the Chinese scenario, that world investors see us as a bit of a proxy. Too hard to invest in China. Let's invest in Australia. Yeah. So there's definitely that element. So that's weighing on us. But I think over time that, that probably loses its flavour. Australia is um, struggling 
as as a as a um, share market, we've had a pretty ordinary year. We've gone sideways, way behind the Americans. China's weighed on us. Small caps have been terrible. All, all the sentiment is a bear market, but the market mm. still has kind of trucked along. I, th- I think the longer we can hold this level and once we get a bit of clarity about where that interest rate scenario caps out, the moment we think interest rates are peaked and if we haven't gone into recession, and I think that's got to play out over the next six months, the Aussie market will garner favour again. So I think we're, we're building a pretty good base. Now, if they've got to lift rates five, six, seven times, I'll change my mind. I'm not going to go too far. But I think the, the real opportunity will be in the smaller cap land because the big caps have actually done okay and there's nothing glaring there that says you've got to buy me. Um, maybe some healthcare stocks that have been harshly treated in recent times. I don't know. That's not my cup of tea. But mm. I think small caps are definitely from mid down, mid-sized companies down, is where it looks to me that needs to run, especially if interest rates top out. We'll dig into that ro- dig into that rotation in a bit. Um, we've seen a lot of M&A activity. PE firms are up and about. Businesses looking to buy growth rather than generate it organically. Do you see that continuing over the next six to 12 months? I think so because growth slowed because of the interest rate. I'm not saying growth hasn't slowed. It has. And so when you get um, – as long as balance sheets are okay, when you get a slowing of top-line growth, you see – there's two periods where then M&A is quite – Strong. It's when there's no growth and companies want to buy growth by buying a competitor or, or a new division and then taking the costs out. So it's EPS creep. The other time is the top of bull markets when everyone's doing everything because there's so much money around. So I, I think, yes, you're going to get that. But longer term, I think Australia are in a terrific position. They've just got to be good enough to take advantage of it. You know, I, I, I think that immigration is back. And there's a lot of pros and cons about immigration, but we're a growing country. Uh, and we've heard Tim Carlton, he was on that panel last week, and he was talking about we're going, it's true. We don't talk about it too much, but we're a growing country. We've got good systems. We've got a great financial system. We've got to take advantage of those, and I think we've got a good long-term future, and we don't have to be dependent so much on our exports to China and whatnot. But if you ask me about the short term, I think the opportunity, and I'm talking short the next two years, is in the small cap market where things aren't fully valued. Some stocks are, but aren't fully valued and the economic growth will re-accelerate sometime. Maybe it's going to take 12 months, but the market will be looking forward and trying to capture that earlier. What will be the main tell? It Will it be when the consumer's back on and consumer-facing stocks take off, especially in small caps? No, I think it's followed the interest rate cycle. Okay. Yeah. So we, we as, a, as an equity investor, you can't wait. Um, consumers tend to go early. Companies are slow. Boards take a long time to get evidence that they can do stuff. But consumers go quickly. If, if they're being a drought, you still need the new fridge. You still need, you know, you, the idea of having a new lounge or whatever doesn't disappear. It just gets deferred. So the consumer... But from an equity point of view, follow the interest rate cycle. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for Australians, it's it's dominated by the US interest rate. So it takes us out of our kind of comfort zone a little bit. So once that 10-year bond yield um, peaks and heads down to a degree, which it should do over history, then then that's probably your trigger about, okay, let's get fully invested. Let, let's pick the eyes out of this market. Until then, if it, if it kicks from 4.3 or whatever it is today to 4.7, back off. 
Don't, don't worry, you don't, unless you're a shorter of the market. Speaking about rate sensitivity, um, what's your view on the banks and, and financials more generally? Yeah, I've kind of got banks a bit wrong. They haven't been bad performers, as I said. The big end of the market's done okay. Um, what, what, what the banks have reduced themselves to since the GFC is basically a home lender because mm. of risk and APRA and so on, and they've had to take on more capital so the returns are down. So they've been good yield earners for, you know, especially a retail investor, but they haven't been great in terms of capital growth. So I, I would, I think what they need, everyone's concentrating on their NIM, their net interest margin, and bad debts. I think people are getting comfortable with bad debts. That's why they perform. The NIM is is to do with how much you know they can borrow money for and then relend it. That's starting to fix itself because it was quite bad there for about twelve months. But like all companies, for the share price to re-rate, the top line's got to start to grow, and they've reduced themselves to a housing market. They can't. They can't cost out much more. That horse has run. Oh, they'll, they'll continue to do it with. Um, with different forms of technology, but but the, you know that was the early '90s into the 2000s where they got costs right down. It's not obvious how that happens from here. It'll be incremental, but it mm. won't be a big leap. So I'm quite bullish if we can keep our immigration levels up. Then the run rate we're doing this year and into next year, there's a housing shortage. The banks could kick back quite nicely, but at the moment that's not the case. So. Let's move on to Centennial's Level 18 fund. Yep. What is it and what sets it apart from other funds? Yeah, so if we go back to when we set it up, um, Level 18 was um, we had one outside investor while, while Gary and I were managing our own money after that Wilson Asset Management period and, and they, they, they existed on Level 18 of the building and that's why it's called the Level 18 fund. The management company Centennial and that's who we are. And so... When we formed Centennial in 2015, we made no bones about it. We were going to manage the money as if it was our own money. So all our capital that's not in our homes, so you've got to remember we're in our 50s now, um, even though we have hired someone in their 30s, Charlie Gray, recently. So that's, that's a big step for us in terms of generational change. But we're in our 50s. So all our money is in the fund with other people who invest with us. And we make no bones about the fact that we manage it as if it's our own money. So we have a number of... It is your own money. That's right, along with other people's money. But a a lot of institutional investors and family offices and and financial planners will say, we do the asset allocation, you guys just manage the money and do your small caps. And, And we say, well, that won't always happen with us. We manage to take out the volatility. So one of the big fears I've had over the time to give you an idea is that I take your money, put it in the fund, we have the COVID crisis and in five weeks the market's down 42%. You come to me and say, I've got an issue at home, I've got to take the money out. Mm. Now that's got nothing to do with um, me in the sense that the markets have collapsed and so, but you lose a lot of money and, and that sits with me and uh, so that, that's terrible because invariably when Markets go down and there's recessions. Everyone's got to put out a fire elsewhere. And so they need money. So we try and avoid that as much as we can. So we've got as many devices at, available to us to limit downside. So we can go to 100% cash. We can be short stocks. Um, we can move up the register, uh, market cap register and go to large stocks. Which is what you've done in the past year. You've, you've 
Correct. Uh, um, hidden in a bit of safety in, correct. La- in yeah. larger caps. That's right. The small caps liquidity dried up, and I've been there before, and small caps can underperform for extended periods. So to go back to COVID, when that five weeks happened, I've, like all your guests have said that I've listened to all the podcasts, they say, well, we didn't really know what was going on. It was something new to us. We went to 90% cash, and we did it in rapid fire because we walk outside and shops were closing and and the markets were cratering, and, and we said, well, we can't afford. So when so Was there the market liquidity to do that kind of fire sale? Yeah, well, here's another, here's another um, tool that you can use. Um, we... We sold about 75% of our holdings without too much problem. You've got to remember markets were falling in those first few days, but we mm. were lucky enough to start moving a little bit before because there was there was tremors around. Talking to companies, they're saying, oh, China's closing down, this is happening, all the stuff before it hit the real world. And so we started and we got to about 30% cash quite quickly and then it, it hit the headlines and we're going to, you know, the idea of closing down was in Australia's backyard and so we... And we got about 75% out. And then, and then we actually um, sold some um, All Ordinaries futures to get us down even further. Now, that was only for a short period. Mm. And then we, the big question was, got to get back on the bike. And you had to be really quick then mm. because – and that was that V-shape I talked about. That was one of those because the Reserve Bank – It was a, it was a fast bounce. Fast bounce. We couldn't miss it because you know, it's okay to protect – investors are funny. They'll, they'll sometimes take the losses. They don't like them, but they won't – they won't stomach mm. Mr. Bounce. And that, that's something that keeps you awake at night. When is that bounce coming? We hear time and time again that timing the market is a mug's game. But if I'm hearing you right, when the writing's on the wall, you can, you can time the market in order to preserve capital. Yeah, and, and, and Buffett leads that fanfare that, that um, timing is a mug's game. And it is. And if, if you're Warren Buffett and you've got 400, 500, 600, a trillion billion or a trillion dollars in the market, he's got no chance. We're a lot smaller and deliberately so. Mm-hmm. And we won't always get it right. It bites us sometimes that we get too conservative. But the, the GFC um, was a classic example and also COVID where price action becomes pretty stark very quickly and, and you know that this is not normal and we have to do something. So to give you, we were down 15% from that top to bottom. Small caps were down 42 and the the the, the ASX 200 was down 37, I think. We were down 15. So if I give you the example, you got $100 and you're down 42%. You're at $58. Then you're up 50%. You, you haven't got back your money yet. Mm. You know, you're, you're back at... 90 or mm. whatever, you're still down 10%. Mm. So it means a lot if you can avoid those losses. Something Greg Perry said in the early days, he said, when you when we started, Jeff and I, Greg came in to see us. We said, come and tell us how, how to do this. You're, you're, and he goes, just avoid the losses. And, and, and that works in a market sense, if you can do it. And we were small enough to do it. And we remain that way. So we've always told our investors, we do things a certain way. We think about $275, $300 million in the Level 18 fund is it. Then we can grow it organically over time as markets get bigger and more liquid. But to do it how we do it is hard. And so we were down 15%. And I'm only telling you this because it works, because sometimes it doesn't work. Then over the next 12 months, we're up 45%. We got the bounce and we, we, we probably took a month. We're a bit slow, but we slowly got back. And then we got back into the market. And you, and you rode that bounce with smalls? Mainly. We actually started. Here was another element to being flexible. We actually started in big caps. Because there were fights over the table. We all agree most of the time that I was saying, 
I cannot afford to... We've done a great job to limit the damage because we're long going into this, 15%. Everyone, but we can't afford to... When the bounce happens, it's going to be quick because it's all violent. It's, it's not a... It's, it's, it's not a low adrenaline um, kind of bottom of the market that we're experiencing now where you get into the doldrums. This is violent, anxious, everyone's you know, white-knuckle right. It's going to bounce. And sure enough, it did. And so we started with big caps. And in those heady days of March, April 2020, it was almost like you, you became an insider. A lot of companies were doing weekly or, or fortnightly updates. You know, Brambles, Amcor, these international groups that were moving goods around the world that were vital to world growth. They were telling you, we expected a downturn, but it only lasted for about a week and now we're doing okay. You know, we, we listened to a lot of REA calls on the domestic front and so on, the banks. And so we did it with big caps, but then we realised when the economy had settled, probably in the May, which is only about, it all felt like, mm. you could invest in everything over about three months, mm. you've done the whole cycle. We started to come back into small caps because they hadn't bounced, but we were talking to them all the time. They said, look, we thought it would happen this way, but actually we've got a fair bit of demand. And we all know the story now that COVID demand was really strong for some areas. And the last gift to us in that period were the banks. Mm. So we went back in the August, September, because everyone stayed away from the banks because the government got hold of them and made them provide and so on. And everyone was waiting for the tsunami of bad debts and it didn't happen. So we got a ride out of the banks. So, yeah. And then uh, you got you were in smalls, and then you got back into larger cap names oh, ahead, a of the, bit, but mainly ahead of the rate cycle. Yeah, and then, and then um, you had to you know there was eighteen months where things went a bit crazy. I mean, we had we had crypto, we had meme stocks. Everyone was at home. There was free money everywhere. We went from we went from the darkest hour since the Second World War to one of the great bull markets. But it was very short, and we'd kind of. Towards the back end of it, take on a bit of cash again. You couldn't really short because markets going up. Never short a market that's going up. It lifts all boats, as they say, mm-hmm. the tide. Mm. And then, and then we spent the next uh, year being very conservative, and we took on a bit of cash, but we went to big caps. Now, in the main, you know, we probably got half of our portfolio into big caps. What kind of names did you move into? Uh, yeah, we it was a variety. Um, but they're mainly the, the quality end because you got a chance to, to buy things after the initial sell-off. So mainstays of, of the business in that period were things like REA, um, you know, one of the great Australian businesses, but always expensive. You get a chance to buy them occasionally. You know, we've had car sales for a long time. That, that worked, and, and we all know this, the car market was an interesting market over COVID. Shortages, the prices up. Um, you know, there was a, there was a whole bunch of different ones. We, we rode Telstra for a long time, uh, QBE because insurance premiums were going mm-hmm. up. There were some just funny things happening that worked our way. Now we're into the process of cycling out of a lot of the big caps and trying to find those small caps that I talked about. It might be a bit early. It's taking a bit longer than I thought, but we're going through this grinding bottom. Uh, but I think that's where the opportunity is over the next couple of years to reposition into smaller companies. You want good companies with good balance sheets, but... Let's just see. You've got to pick the eyes out of that smaller cap market. What kind of names and sectors could you see yourself rotating into? Yeah, so what's been beaten up? Obviously, retail. There's some that have kicked some own goals, but we think you know they might have some really good opportunities because they're in the process of trying to fix those. It's always a repair job's great, 
because it gets cost based down, gets you know something like an Adairs, which as I said, I'm quite bullish on housing. Mm. Not so much today because the developers are struggling with the margin on housing. So we're not, getting, but we know there's a shortage of housing, so a lot have got to be built. Um, so that that might work. I mean, you'd love to just invest in something like a Nick Scarley in that area because they're great operators. And so maybe you do a bit of both. You go for the more risky one that hasn't done so well. Another one's Beacon Lighting that's that's kind of been thrown out. They're, they're smaller cap ones. I think the non-bank financials are in- also interesting. Mm. Not that we own any in the non-banks at the moment, but we're watching them closely because the banks got with that cheap money from the RBA, got incredibly, out of COVID, got incredibly focused on market shares. And, you know, the cashbacks, take a loan out, you get three grand and all this kind of stuff. That's all coming back now, the the discounting and everyone's saying, oh, we've got to improve our margin. In that period, some of the non-bank lenders were out of the market Mm. because they couldn't make it work. The the, the discounts were too heavy. They'll come back in. Um, we can't just deal with the four banks. And so we like that area. They're, they're, they're cheap. They're all at one times book or less. So we're looking at a whole bunch of lenders at the moment. Some are good, some I wouldn't go near. Are you playing any of the big thematics at the moment, namely electrification and AI in any yeah, way? Yeah, there's there's not a lot of opportunity in that space in Australia. Like strangely, if you want to play AI, where do you go in mm. Australia? Um it seems like you go to the data centres. Mm-hmm. But but even more extreme is, well, what's the best data centre play in Australia? So we own a bit of Macquarie Telecom, or Macquarie Technologies as it's called now. Um, they're, they're a bit of a hybrid, but they're, they're moving towards that because next DC is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also at the big end, one stock that I should have mentioned before that we have owned for quite a while is Goodman Group because mm-hmm. the industrial market was so strong. But they've... They're not only in the industrial market that's so strong now, but they've pivoted into data centres. Everyone's got very excited about that. Um, so, yeah, and you just got to be careful, and everyone who's listening, that the biggest boom in Australia over the last three or four years, there's been lots. There's been the buy now, pay later. There's been the pop boom. And they all just come and go. They, you know, they fly and crash. But one that is real, and we've talked about it a lot, is the, the, um, the battery boom mm. and, and how... Australia's got a lot of these minerals that are required by batteries and there's a, there is a there is a structural change going on and it's terrific. But we go in bursts and we get too excited at times. So if you go back in the last year, there's been two booms. There was a copper boom that everyone got too long, as they say, crowded trade. And then lithium, of course. And lithium has been a shocker this year. Like in the main, not all of them, some have been taken over, but the big companies have peaked early in the year and just been going down and down for quite a while. So you disagree with Tim, Tim Carlton where he says that, yes, it's a crowded trade, but who cares if you look at the long-term trajectory? No, I think if you asked him, he, he would actually say now, you know, that we did get in a, in a, in a crowded position and he lightened his weight here but with the idea I'm coming back in. Yep. Because I agree with him. But you just got to be careful of those crowded trades. I mean, oil became... You know, a crowded trade back in the middle of 2022, and everyone was saying, "Oh, I don't like retail. I don't, I don't like financials. There's a, there's a, a recession coming." But I love oil. I love oil, and that was the time not to invest in oil. That was the real crowded trade. It wasn't these others. So you've got to be careful around that. So there's booms and busts, and, and uh, but I do, do think a lot of those green energy minerals, and not only lithium, but it's cobalt, it's copper, it's nickel. Have got good long-term paths, but they're going to go on boom-bust cycles, kind of thing. And at the moment, they're all coming off, and so but that creates the opportunity in the months ahead. 
as a fund manager, do you find it hard investing in uh, these commodity companies that are so subject to spot prices? Definitely. So I've never been a big resources investor because you can you can do all the numbers on them. You can have a good balance sheet. You can have um, great management. You can have a good environment for that market. And you think, well, I've done all the work. I've, and I've looked at the assets and they're in good jurisdictions and so on. And it goes down because the commodity price goes down. You know, uranium yeah. is another one at the moment, right? So the amount of times people have told me the uranium market, which is the, one of the great alternate energies, and been in the news in the last couple of weeks in Australia, it, 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 all, it has looked like there's a demand is strong and supply deficient, commodities should go up. And it's been a widow maker for, for most investors in, in recent times. So over a five or six year period, it's such an opaque area. It's hard, but maybe maybe uranium is going to have its time. You know, it's one of the alternate energies and it's global. Mm. So maybe the last uh, six weeks where it's actually bounced might be the beginning of one of the great bull markets. <laughs> it's hard to tell with that. that that's yeah. it, it could collapse, but it could be bigger than lithium. It, it could be one of the great bull markets. Let, let's see. All right. Matt, let's move on to our three favourite questions, yep. which, which I know... I'm having nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared of these questions. Well, you shouldn't be scared because... Sleepless. They're just a bit of fun. They're a hypothetical. All right. Question one, Matt. What's one thing investors are getting wrong about markets at the moment? Well, it's an interesting question because um, investors are always wrong about the market. It proves everyone wrong. But I would say at the moment, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier is that I'm not a, a bull on interest rates coming down, as you can tell. I think they stay higher for the reasons we've outlined. But I think what investors are getting wrong is that's not necessarily the death of the equity market. Mm. That we, it, It's the trajectory of interest rates that scare people, as we've seen, and, and scares consumers. If, if I say to you, Dave, interest rates are going to go to 10%, you're going to go, oh... <laughs> I'm going to pull in my spending, mm. and, and and you might, as a young guy, you might say, oh, well, that's an opportunity down the track to buy a house. i just got to keep my job. But it scares people. So interest rates can be at that higher level. Sure, valuations are down compared to what they should be, just on the valuation metrics about discounting earnings in the future. But the earnings actually can can you know run along quite a good clip. So equity markets can perform. They've performed in the 70s and 80s in various forms. It's a trajectory. So I think the market's getting higher rates wrong. Question two, uh, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? What happened? What did you take away from it? Yeah, so big win was probably, I'm hopeless, I never get 10 baggers. I've been in the game for now, I think it's 25 years. I've never had a 10 bagger. Like Peter Lynch, it haunts me with that term. <laughs> like he used to get 10 baggers every other day in his book, <laughs> went up on Wall Street, and here I am 25 years in. But that's just me. I'm not a visionary. I, I do a lot of small bites um, and as I said, it, you're not in the, the massive market. I'm in small caps in Australia, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily have the runway that you know US and international stocks have. But Patrick's was probably you know Langcorp as it was. It was Patrick's that moved into Langcorp. Um, I'll never forget. It was the first stock I bought at Wilson Asset Management. Um, Jeff let me off the leash. I bought it. it. It went from 80 cents to 68. And he came in, and the only time he ever got angry with me, he came in, he goes, are you expletive sure about this stock? 
And I said, well, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was more to do with how the markets were volatile. And that, that's a great lesson, you know, to get – sometimes you've got to stay the course and you with did. certain stocks. There's other stocks, you know, well, it's an individual stock issue. This was just about the market being wobbly. It, you know, it might have been a September period like it always is, like it is now. We stayed the course and we went – we left it, um, you know, far too early, but we got to the $4.00. Yeah, and, and that was the first investment. So you want to your best investments are early on in your career. Then you can market it for the rest of your life. Like it's still mine. I don't think I've had, and we're in size. It was big. It got big enough to be in size. Bad investments regularly. Um, we're in the small cap end of the market generally. Nothing's too big to fail. Um, solvency's an issue. Balance sheets are always an issue. The one that sticks out to me where we made a lot of money and we were too slow to get out of was Bellamy's. Mm -hmm. So another boom, as someone said to me, they call it the white powder when, you know, obviously reference to cocaine, that it was like cocaine, was infant formula going up to China. And A2 was the the big one and Bellamy's was the next one. And we'd been in Bellamy's early and it was one of the few where I thought, no, this could work. And it was cheap in those days and they had great growth and there was lots of upgrades. But then the world changed in various forms, and it wasn't a change in China. It was actually a falling out with some of its Australian distributors that killed it in the in the first instance. And um, um, yeah, we were we were rebuying. I was convicted that it was going up and long, long and wrong, and it fell. I think like from thirteen dollars to nine dollars in one trade. Oof. And um, you know, you, you take that. You when prices adjust, they're brutal. And, and I was going to say, I've, I've had two kind of areas I've worked in, I wouldn't call them careers, but one is journalism and two is funds management. And the great, great um, um, common part of those two two um, jobs is that both have got the ability to make you feel violently ill at times. <laughs> <laughs> and for newspapers, if someone competitor gets a story and you miss it, and in, and in stocks, it's I've made the wrong call and I've been too slow to get out and when it does come, it comes in an instant. Mm. So I, I've had plenty, but we do a lot of small gains because of the you know the, where we are. Question three: If markets were to close tomorrow for five years, and you could only hold a, like stock in one company, um, not that we recommend that, but what company would it be and why? Well, this one's hard to justify because if the markets are closed, they don't transact. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm presuming you're going to say that it's more you've got to hold a stock for five years, you're not allowed to sell it. Exactly. Because I'm exactly. going to pick the ASX. Now, we don't own it, and it, it's the forgotten platform in Australia. It's at, probably at its cheapest level, and it's been poorly managed. But it, it's the forerunner to REA, car sales, seek. It was the first electronic platform for a market in Australia, and people don't see it that way. And it's fended off a whole bunch of um, you know competitors over time. Probably the latest one was crypto, and it's been poorly managed. So it's setting itself up for a more positive market and better management. There's nothing better than a good business because it's effectively still quite a monopoly and it's, it's a good business. And the other thing is regulatory. It's, it holds um, a, a lot of capital. But most of that's through it. And now it's in a repair job. If markets turn, it's leveraged to that over time. Mm. And the other thing is I'm in the equity market. I've got to believe in it. It's, it always amazes me that people in the markets get a bonus or whatever and go and buy a holiday home. <laughs> You know, they can't, they, they're the same people who say house prices in Australia are expensive. But the next thing you know, they go, oh, I bought a holiday home down the coast or I bought a farm somewhere. And you kind of think, but you're not in that game. Why, why wouldn't you back what you're doing? 
Not everyone, but you hear it a lot of the time. And so the ASX is basically what we all trade off. And, and I do think over time it's a good investment. It's just a lot of things have, have conspired against it. And so I don't own at the moment, but I watch it carefully. It's into the 50s. It's below where it was in the peak in 2007 at the moment. Um, and I think it's a good business. Question was if markets were to close. That's right. So, so I don't know if I can allow it, but I will allow it for you, Matt. <laughs> um, it, it was a good answer. Matt, we've got to wrap this up. Thanks so much for coming on The Rules of Investing. Yeah, I've enjoyed being on this side of the mic. That's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Matt Kidman. Thanks to Bell Direct for their support of this podcast. And remember, for a limited time, you can get three Bell Potter stock reports each week and you will go into the draw to win a share of 3 million Velocity Frequent Flyer points. So go to Bell Direct, check the full terms and conditions and look for the Livewire logo to get your Bell Potter stock reports now. Competition ends 31st October 2023. Entry conditions and eligibility criteria apply. New South Wales Authority number TP forward slash 02866. South Australia permit number T23 forward slash 123. ACT permit number TP23 forward slash 01592.